Well, we are in our, I stand to be corrected, our fourth week of, of Kindred. And uh, it has been an awesome journey. We got two more weeks left. And um, interchurch small groups are meeting together between the three churches, and we're digging deeper. We're studying First Peter together. Uh, we've had uh, a, a kindred cultural conversation here at UPC on last Wednesday, and this coming Wednesday we will have another kindred cultural conversation uh, at Damascus. And so we're excited about what God is doing and how God is expanding our vision, and we're embracing the multi-ethnic family of God. So here we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 11 through 17, and I want to hang as a title over this text, Breaking the Cycle of Ungrace. Breaking the Cycle of Ungrace. And I want to invite you to stand as we read 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 through 17 in unison. Let us read together. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether the emperor as supreme, or of governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. For it is God's will by this doing right, you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. As servants of God, live as free people, yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Honor everyone, love the family believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our Lord lasts forever. Breaking the cycle of ungrace. A key word in Peter's vocabulary is the word grace. He uses this word as a theological underpinning to substantiate the ethical basis of his letter. Chapter 1, Peter gives us a theological uh, panoramic view of what God has done for us and what in the person of Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 1, he talks about orthodoxy, right belief. And immediately in chapter 2, all the way to chapter 5, he begins to talk about orthopraxy right behavior. So if we have a right belief, it should correlate with right behavior. In emphasizing grace, Peter challenges his listeners to follow the narrow path of Jesus. It's an unpopular path that even Peter in his, in his gospel days uh, confronted Jesus on taking this path that ultimately led to his death on an old rugged cross. 
But this word grace is mentioned some five to six times, and it serves as a, a thread that gathers all the chapters together. But the question comes today, how do I appropriate the grace of God in my own life, my own personal life? Does the grace of God have ethical implications in how we as Christians relate, interact, engage the world in which we live? Does grace have any bearing on how I treat my spouse, how we raise our children? How can I be a conduit of God's grace and not a cul-de-sac? How can I allow grace to flow freely through me to my brothers and sisters and to those who don't even know the Lord rather than gather grace together and, let, and just sit on it? I would submit to you today that the world in which we live is stuck in a vicious cycle of ungrace. There's a famine of grace in our world today. We see it on the news, we read of it in the paper, and as we read between the lines of every magazine and every paper, we see this cycle of ungrace that perpetuates itself, and it creates discord in our society. We experience ungrace on the highway when someone cuts us off. We experience it on our jobs. Last but not least, we even experience it in the church. Ungrace can split a church. Ungrace has caused many people to give up on the church. And many pastors have thrown in the towel because of ungrace in ministry. And I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're thinking. Someone may be asking, well, is, is ungrace even a word? <laughs> I know some of y'all have accused me of making up some preacher words. <laughs> and I must confess, I do make up some words. I figure if, if Webster can make up some words, I can make up some words. <laughs> but yes, ungrace is... A word, it's defined as the lack or the absence or the antithesis of grace, gracelessness. And I might also submit that the title itself didn't originate with me. Uh, Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace. And in one of those chapters, he, he titles it Breaking the Cycle of Ungrace. And he tells the story of a father who has several children, and he's an alcoholic, and he, he, he tears his children down, and he has one daughter named Daisy who resents her father. But she continues the cycle of un ungrace. Even though at one point her father has come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, she said, I could never forgive him for what he's done to me. 
And Daisy continues the cycle of ungrace, and she has a daughter named Margaret, and Margaret inherits the ungrace of her mother, Daisy, and then she begins to tear her children down, and, and Margaret has a son named Michael, and Michael, even though he becomes a Christian, he still continues the cycle of ungrace. So where does it stop? Where does ungrace stop? Where does grace kick in? I would submit to you today that Peter has an answer for us. How do we break this cycle, this vicious cycle of ungrace that is so prevalent in our world today? How do we break it? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Peter is going to give us an answer to that. Peter helps us to understand, brothers and sisters, that grace is a challenge for us. Ungrace causes us to live in such a way where it's all about us. It's all about us. Well, the first thing we see Peter saying, and Pastor George shared with us on last week, that we are peculiar people. We have a peculiar identity. We have a peculiar purpose. He, he, he laid out. And so here in this particular chapter of chapter 2, 11 through 17, he, he goes on to talk about how do we relate, uh, be a conduit of grace in the context of society and even in relationship with one another. Look at what he says in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds as, and glorify God when he comes to judge. Or one translation says, or the day he visits us. First of all, I must deal with the ungrace that is in me. I must deal with the ungrace that is in me. And I know some of us say, well, is there really any ungrace in me? And every now and then, ungrace flares up its ugly head in our lives where we don't extend grace. The very grace that we desire to receive, we don't re extend that grace to someone else. But look at what he says here. He says, beloved. And now let's just stop right there because that word beloved, that NIV translated, dear friends. I think it's much more than that. Uh, one translation says, loved ones. Loved ones. I like that translation because it captures the idea that remember you are loved by God. Remember that God loves you, that you are living your life from the premise that you are loved by God. Somebody needs to know that today, that you are loved by God, that when you wake up in the morning, you need to rehearse, Lord, you, I know you love me today. And, and, and when your, your love tank is full, there's nothing that you can't go through when you know that you are loved by God. And this is what Peter is saying to the early Christians who, who are under a lot of persecution, a lot of turmoil from within and from without. 
And he says, remember your love. The first way that we break this cycle of ungrace, we must deal with the ungrace that is in me. There's an African proverb that says, if we can conquer the enemy within, the enemy without can do us no harm. That if I can conquer my own doubt, my own fears, my own idiosyncrasies, that the enemy without can do me no harm. So I must deal. Allow the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit to deal with the grace that is ungrace that is within me. But then he says, he expresses the, the urgency of this matter. He says, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Peter explain, expresses the urgency of the matter, and he goes back even to what he said in chapter 1. Remember that you are aliens and exiles, that you are aliens and exiles by choice. You, you, are, you are aliens and exiles because you, you come from another place, that you are citizens of heaven first, and and citizens of the earth second. Remember that you are not of this world. That's a song that we sing in the, in the African-American tradition. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. That's what Peter is saying to them. Just remember that you are sojourners. You are pilgrims. Don't get too settled here because you march to the drumbeat of a different drummer. And that is Jesus Christ. He says, don't get engaged in the vices of this world. Be governed by the ethical grace of God. At its very core, at very core, ungrace is self-centered. It's self-fulfilling. It's self-absorbed. Ungrace as one writer puts it, Phil Harder said, ungrace edges God out, but grace exalts God only. Ungrace says, ungrace says Lord, I'm going to push you out on the periphery, periphery of life. I'm not going to allow you in the inner corridors of my heart where I am governed by your grace. Peter understood this. When we read about Peter in the Gospels, he, he had his own agenda. Peter, as one writer said, one of my mentors said that Peter stuck his foot in his mouth so much that he should have been wearing peppermint socks. <laughs> but now we see Peter being careful with his words. Now we see uh, the, the grace that flows from the mouth of Peter, and he's saying something that is diametrically opposed to what he would have said in the Gospels. How did Peter get there? How did you get there, Peter? Because I, I, I want to know because I haven't gotten to where Peter is yet. Peter says, remember, you are loved by God. Peter had to remember that that day when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? three times, and 
There was no doubt that Jesus loved Peter. But he asked Peter the question, do you love me? And now Peter has become a conduit of God's grace. Jonathan Wilson points out in his book, he says, in a sense, the presence of grace in our lives promises us that we can all become moral Olympians, not in our own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, all of us can be uh, conditioned, if you will, by God's grace. All of us can, can be, become an embodiment, if you will, of God's grace. He says, abstain from the desires of the, of the flesh that wage war against the soul and conduct yourselves, behave yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds, your behavior, your good works, and glorify God when he comes to judge. Peter's always thinking futuristically when Jesus comes back. And he, he wants to make sure that grace is the ethics of the day in the Christian's life. And so he's always, he's always emphasizing right behavior. As we see, we, we've seen in the gospel Peter, Peter misbehaving. <laughs> we, we've seen in the gospels Peter cut, cut someone's ear off. We, we've seen in the gospel where Peter denies Jesus. But, so now Peter is talking about behaving rightly in such a way that it draws a person who doesn't know the Lord attention to Jesus Christ. So don't be un. Be a person of ungrace is what Peter is saying. Be a conduit of God's grace. Don't allow your, your behavior to become an impediment to someone else seeing who Jesus is. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, there should be something distinctively different about us than those who don't know the Lord. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, we, we can't blend in. We've got to stand out because of God's grace. So I must deal with the ungrace that is in me. But not only that, he says in verse, verses 13 and 14, he says, For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether the emperor as supreme or of governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. Now, this is what messed me up. I, I had to call Peter into the room. I said, wait a minute, Peter. Now, how, how, can, we, how can we accept the authority of an institution that is against human dignity? How can we accept, accept a, a human institution that, that, that demeans and, and condescends one race and elevates another race? How can we accept a, a human institution? These are the questions that I, I asked Peter, but he didn't answer them. He just says, for the Lord's sake, 
except the authority of every human institution. I think what Peter is getting at, that the emphasis here is that our entire life is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Our allegiance is to the Lord. He says, for the Lord's sake, Peter is emphasizing that this isn't about you. This isn't about your rights. This is about Jesus. He said, this isn't about what you think. This is about what Jesus thinks. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, for the Lord's sake. Now, if he says for the Lord's sake, he's saying not, not for, for my mother's sake, not for my father's sake, not for the sake of Democrats, not for the sake of Republicans, not for Black Lives Matter's sake, not for America's sake, not for the sake of socialism, not for the sake of communism, but for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what Peter is saying to them because no doubt there's some people in the church saying, wait a minute, Peter, I can't handle all of this persecution. It's time for us to rise up. It's time for us to overthrow the Roman government by any means necessary. And Peter says, no, I used to think like that, but something happened. Grace happened, and I don't think like that anymore. And this is where Peter rubs me the wrong way. Because he's teaching us that grace has social, ecclesial, spiritual, and political implications for our lives as Christians. Grace is not just relegated to God's unmerited favor toward man, but grace shapes us. As the songwriters say, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace forms us. It teaches us. <laughs> so Peter understood this. You know, I, I woke up this morning thinking about the impact of God's grace on my life. And he's giving me privileges that I don't deserve because it's based on his grace that I am where I am today. One of my mentors Reverend Dr. Nathaniel Irvin, who took me under his wings when I first started in ministry, he used to say, and I don't know where he got it from, he said, but, but for the grace of God, there go I. He said, I, I could be homeless. I, I could be unemployed. I, I could be out of my mind, but for the grace of God, there go I. So Peter tells us in verse 13 and 14, 14, embrace the all-encompassing grace of Jesus Christ. Embrace it. Be a conduit, not a cul-de-sac. Embrace the grace of Jesus Christ. I like the way he says in 1 Peter 4.10, he talks about the manifold grace of God. 
In other words, grace is like a diamond, and you look at it from every angle, and it shines. There's no dark spot in God's manifold grace. It, it's beautiful, and it, and, and, and it shines, and, and it's a grace that you can look at from every angle, and there's no deficiency in God's grace. Peter gives his listeners insight into a peculiar perspective. This is not the Peter of the Gospels. This, this, this is the Peter who has been formed and shaped by God's grace. Peter's words is very much in keeping with Jeremiah 29.7. He says, but Jeremiah said, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray that the Lord on its behalf, for in his welfare, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In other words, don't be, don't hate the city that you live in. Love the city. Uh, don't do what you can. Don't, don't criticize the city you live in, but say, what can I do to help? What, how can I make this city a better city? How can I clean up the city? How can I encourage the mayor? How can I encourage our politicians? How can I not only encourage them, but also hold them accountable? But how can I be a conduit of God's grace, even in the political arena of life? Because this is, what God's, this is what God needs, brothers and sisters. He needs men and women who are conduits of his grace because God needs a space, just a tiny space to infuse his grace into that environment. He needs a person who understands the, the influence of grace. He needs someone to understand that if, if, if God can take up a little space in your life Grace can change the environment of your marriage. If God can take up a little bit of space in your life, grace can change the, the direction of your children. If, if God can take up a little bit of space in your life, on your job, God can change the heart of your employer. He can change the heart of your colleagues if God can take up just a little bit of space in your life. Grace, it forms us. Embrace the, the all-encompassing grace of Jesus Christ. Embody this messianic grace. When we read the gospel, was it not grace? That when the woman who had an issue of blood flowing out of her, she touched the hem of his garments, and grace flowed from his garments, and she said, who touched me? Was it not grace when blind Bartimaeus called him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me? And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Was it not grace that healed his sight? Was it not grace that the woman Jesus met at the well and she had known all, all kind of men and Jesus says that, that, that no, the one that, you, that you're meeting right now, I am he. I am the one who will give you new life. And she left that well, says, come see a man who has told me all about myself. Was it not grace that met Peter on the seashore 
and asked Peter, do you love me? And restored Peter. Was it not grace that hung on the cross and said to John, John, behold your mother and mother, behold your son? Was it not grace when Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? Was it not grace that died on the cross for us? Grace gives us a divine perspective on life. Grace enables us to, to see every person as an image bearer of God, whether we agree with them or not, whether, there's, whether they're straight, gay, Republican, Democrat, socialist, or communist, rich or poor, grace enables us to see them as image bearers of God. Grace governs our conduct toward the government. Grace governs us. It shapes us. It forms us. God's grace, you know, when Paul had this thorn in the flesh, brothers and sisters, and he prayed that God would remove the thorn in the flesh, and Paul could get a prayer through, but God says, Paul, I'm, I'm not going to answer the prayer that you, the way you want me to answer, but I want you to know that my grace is sufficient, that everything you need, Paul, is encaptured in my grace. You know, I like that. I like that commercial that was years ago. It's an Italian family in a kitchen. And it, it and the mother of the family was cooking some tomato sauce or some spaghetti sauce. And and, and it, it was a Prego commercial. And the Italian family, you know, they, they don't want to get something out of a bottle. They want to make it for themselves. And so man came over, the, the young man came over and said, you're getting spaghetti sauce out of a bottle? He said, now, is, is oregano in there? Is, is olive oil in there? Is all the ingredients in there that makes up spaghetti sauce? And he says, she says, it's in there. It's in there. And I thought about that, that whenever we think about God's grace, God's grace has everything we need in it. When we th think about justification, it's in there. When we think about forgiveness, it's in there. When we think about love, it's in there. When we think about peace, it's in there. When we think about encouragement, it's in there. God's grace is sufficient. It's in there. God's all-encompassing grace. He wants us to be conduits of his grace. Somebody needs to know this morning that God's grace is sufficient. Somebody has experienced so much ungrace even this week that you need to know today that God's grace is sufficient. You need to know that Jesus died that you might Embrace the grace that he only has for you. That Jesus sees you where you are. Jesus sees you in the condition that you're in. And he extends his hands of grace so that you can not only embrace his grace, but embody it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for breaking the cycle of ungrace in my, in my life. Thank you, Lord, for 
being a God who extends his grace even to those who are grace killers. So, Lord, we just pray right now that you would touch some man, some woman, some boy or girl that needs to know today. That may they, maybe they have experienced grace, ungrace from, from their parents, ungrace from a friend, ungrace from a brother, ungrace from a sister, ungrace from, from a teacher. Maybe they have experienced ungrace, but no, let them know today that they can experience grace, the manifold grace of God. Touch them right now, Lord God. Let them know that you are there for them. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.